You're listening to Tasting Together with Andre Pru and Maroki Tong. Andre, you're free. Almost. <laughs> I am almost free. Well, it's been uh, dry-ish. I- I've seen some marketing material refer to January as damp January. And I- I've, yeah. actually, I've actually been on, on board with that. Like, I-, I- I've been very careful as a wine writer in my entire career going back to 2010 to make sure that I preach moderation. Like, I do think that's an important part of of drinking culture, especially... Like, given how binge drinking is still something that is somewhat, like, glorified in pop culture. Like, thinking of every college teen movie, the whole, like, college frat party, let's get wasted and see what happens. They made, like, three hangover movies, right? Like, it's in the name of the movie. Yeah, and I think there's something definitely um, in our culture and, and and pop culture that has very much normalized the whole drinking to to get drunk, yeah. right? And that it's it's okay to do so. And I definitely think that we are trying to move as a culture to um to something that's a little more respectful to people's choices for one. Like I think, yep. you know, when we were young, it was very normal to be like, well, why aren't you drinking tonight? Yes. Right. If someone oh, said yeah. we're not drinking and to really question people. And now looking back, I recognize how inappropriate that was and how inappropriate I was by doing that. And it's a lot of language. It's a lot of considerations that we are trying to be better. It's the whole thing about just trying to be better and be a little more respectful and maybe take a moment to examine our own relationship to certain vices in the world. So I think you're right about that. And I think it's, I think the thing about dry January or even sober October and all, or dry February is that it, it brings up a lot of contentiousness. Cause I think maybe people feel challenged. Like yeah. people feel like they're being, maybe being accused of being or doing something that they think is a normal part of their lives. And I mean, you know, not to really get too deep into it, but I think that's how we always feel when challenged at anything. It doesn't matter whether it is with drink. It sometimes matters with, what we eat, our diet, our political views, our anything. And maybe just as you mentioned, the bigger conversation around it all is maybe if we are, it's just an, an opportunity for us to examine our habits and just look at being a little more considerate and moderate about it. You know, the one thing you talk about is, is in my house, like I do have a rule that, you know, I don't really advertise, but it's a rule that I have with myself is that if someone comes to my house and says they don't want to drink, to have an alternative, to have, interesting non-alcoholic alternatives like it's been my favorite thing about doing dry january over the past few years um is trying to find exciting adult beverages that don't involve alcohol but don't make you feel like you're ordering off the kids menu like which is something that uh, i think has definitely contributed to this whole like drinking culture but i mean i'm very public about this that my brother is an alcoholic um my brother's been sober for many years now but also, you know, my brother is a very big support of me and my wine business. And we actually laugh about it that, you know, he's not able to to drink whatever I make. Um, you know, we have a joke that like he calls alcohol bleach. Um, and it's not fully pejorative. I asked him, like, like, why do you call it bleach? And, um, you know, in his mind, like it serves a purpose, but it's not something he would want to drink. Which I, which I think is actually kind of like a, a a funny way to sort of laugh it off, but like he takes his sobriety very seriously. So, you know, 
when we talk about the, I, I'm, I'm sure I've been guilty of that at some point where someone was at my house in the past and said they wanted a drink, and I would say why it's you know having that wake up call of having someone close to you that is is dealing with um, a problem and and a, mm-hmm. and a disease and wanting to make sure that you're supporting people. Like if someone comes to your house and says they have any other illness, like you're not going to going to give them something that's going to make it worse, right? And it's the same thing too, yes. like being a respectful host. If someone comes to your house and says that they don't eat gluten or that they're vegetarians, you know, you wouldn't question them after the fact and be like, well, you know, will you have a steak anyways, right? Like it makes you kind of a dick. I mean, there's a lot of MID asshole uh, forums that actually address vegan and vegetarian guests. So there's probably more dicks out there than we realize. And uh, I hope you recognize that I was jesting when I made the joke about you being free from. Oh, no, no, listen, listen, no, we can, we can. Okay. But this is one where like you and I, we, we know each other and this is the, this is the case here. Like, uh, I actually uh, appreciate the joke. Here's something that I found interesting this year, though, is. Uh, my first couple dry Januarys that I did, like going back three, four years, were more of a struggle, right? Like, um, I like having a glass of, of wine with a meal. I like having a glass of wine at the at at the end of a day. This year was the first year where it didn't really feel like a struggle. Like I've, I'd sort of gotten the routine down. You know, I think the fact that we have a much better selection of non-alcoholic uh, beverages available for adults, as I'm saying. Uh, makes things a lot easier. Uh, I've got my soda stream that I've been using religiously, but I use it religiously year round. Like it, it wasn't a special part of Dry January, except I definitely use an entire canister in a month. Where usually it takes me two months to rock through a soda stream canister, you know. Mm-hmm. But I know one. There's another reason why we're kind of bringing back Dry January, even though we're kind of wrapping up the month as yeah. this podcast airs. It's because there was something that was sticking in your craw, and we talked about it on our last episode, like barely scratched the surface. But oh my god! It sounds like you've got some new shade that you want to deliver towards our friends at the LCBO. The LCBO needs to back off. Like that's it. I, I was walking through the path, and I saw. The um the LCBO that's just near um Union Station with a giant wall thing saying like non alcoholic options available. I'm sorry, LCBO, you need to stay in your lane. It is hard enough to exist as a private business in this province. Uh, you know, thanks to regulation, thanks to uh, taxation, thanks to everything. And I'm and I'm sorry, like like Doug Ford. You're supposed to have a minister of cutting red tape. You should be making things easier for business. This is literally literally hurting businesses like okay if you and i want to open up um a non-alcoholic beer store and do it next to an lcbo we could do that there is is nothing that stops us from being able to sell non-alcoholic beverages but if the lcbo has decided to start promoting these non-alcoholic options you and i do not have the ability to go and start selling beer selling regular alcoholic beer to complete compete with the lcbo the lcbo is now sticking their hands in private enterprises pockets i'm sorry for all the glitz the glamour the shiny magazines um the radio ads the uh the influencer content that's rolling out on instagram this is not me taking a shot at influencer i'm just saying like they're they are marketing themselves the way uh, you know a mediocrely run private enterprise would do but i'm sorry lcbo you're a drug dealer act like a drug dealer sell the drug that you sell it's alcohol that's it you should not be selling corkscrews you should not be selling ice you should not be stepping on the toes of small businesses stay in your lane there 
I can tell <laughs> I'm pretty worked up about this. I can tell you're pretty worked up about this. And it's it's fascinating that we're opening this conversation. And obviously, if anyone has opinions about this, we always want to hear it. You can always drop us a DM on Instagram, um, Andre at Andre Wine Review and myself at Nine Ounces. Please, the number nine and the four word ounces, four words, please. I always feel like I need to explain my name. I really should just not. <laughs> Whatever. It's <laughs> better than people thinking that your name is Andrew Ein Review. I definitely get people who message me about Andrew every so often enough to be like, it's Andre. Um, but I mean, if you have opinions about this, we definitely want you all to weigh in and, and we'll bring it back on air if you like. Cause I, I did mention. Okay. Well, I got, your, I got, like, I, I, I mentioned your thoughts on this. So Andre, I did mention your thoughts just to like fellow wine industry people. Um, after we did our last episode and, and gearing up for this one, it was fascinating their responses like i thought i would be met with the same level of rage okay um especially and and most people were pretty like oh that makes sense and i actually was shocked and and this is some of the uh this is some of the responses i got the okay. one of the most noted ones was people were, were saying well i can see the lcb wanting to do that because then it'd be a one-stop shop because if you sell the cocktail mix then you know they're like it would save me a trip from needing to go to zares to pick up um, my cocktail mix on top of but that, my, but that's not on top the of my, of, of my rum, and and it was it was a it was like let let me get this straight. I don't necessarily agree because for <laughs> no, all I the economical that. reasons that you that. described, I don't think the LCBO should be competing and becoming a one stop shop. Not to mention that the LCBO is a government funded monopoly. So all right, they so you know what? Let's, let's don't get, really let's... need to be pushing it that hard. It's just shocking me that it's that. If you like to really position the lens of for people to understand, because the thing is, in the end, it's a consumer convenience experience that people are seeking. But but that's it though. Like the the LCBO is it like the LCBO has no competition. It's not supposed to be just about convenience. It's supposed to be about providing the product that you can't get anywhere else. So you know what? I think the LCBO sh- for to, to people who are in the food industry who are in support of the LCBO selling non alcoholic beverages or whatever industry it is. I think the LCBO, like they give out the liquor licenses that allow restaurants to sell booze. You know what? Screw that altogether. Let's let's open up the restaurant branch of the LCBO, and and make sure that that monopoly covers restaurants, right? Like let's let's just start expanding the LCBO business to cover other private enterprise that they're that they're doing. Like it's just it's not fair. It's not fair because they don't allow the competition. Like that's what exists in a healthy marketplace. Mm-hmm. And Sorry, I mean, I, I, no, I'm, I'm numb on the soapbox, Rookie. What do you think? What do you think? Of, what do you think about this? Like, where do you stand on it? I think it's one of those we as consumers need to take a moment sometimes to examine. You know, when you were talking about examining our behaviors around drink and around the pop culture around drink and the normalization of it, I think we as consumers need to also examine our behavior behaviors around um, consumption, right? Not just of alcohol, of goods of goods and services, right? Like we talk a lot about um, wanting to educate our audience about being better customers in the restaurant industry. Um, and, you know, we're going to dig into that a little bit later on today as well, right? Because we're going to be chatting about Winterlicious, if, yep. you know, um, and and sort of what does Winterlicious mean from the service industry and what does it mean from a, a customer-based industry, a customer-based side? And it's the thing, it's the whole thing about a long time ago when I was doing my, MBA and, 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 um, you know, we talked about the ethics around business and the politics around business. And one of the things that was always mentioned was, well, we should be making more domestic goods. We should be making more furniture in Canada or more consumable goods in Canada. And the question that the professor asked was, are we ready to pay the Canadian price though? 
Yeah. And it's the whole thing about the reason why made in China and these days it's not even China because a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of actually businesses think China is too expensive now. Um, but they, you know, back then they said the reason why made in China will never go away is because we are not ready to pay not made in China prices. And so that's an examination of our own consumer behavior. And the LCBO is a reflection of that, right? It's the whole thing of, like I said, even trying to educate my mother that, that I get that the LCBO food and drink magazine is free and it's very shiny and it's very well printed. But do you recognize the impact that you might have on an entire industry or an entire economy by taking advantage of things like this? Or who's paying the price for things like this? And we have to be willing and we have to be willing to be sometimes made a little bit in- uncomfortable inconvenience. The LCBO as a monolithic entity that controls all liquor and cannabis now in Ontario has an incredible amount of control that has impacted businesses, restaurants over the years and even how we consume and how we can find alcohol, right? So in that essence, then they should not be uh, they should not be controlling other avenues as well. Yeah, and it's 100%. like yeah, it might be in, it might be inconvenient for the consumer, but you already were if you think back on it, you were inconveniencing a consumer for a long time. We just got used to it. Well, and so that's don't it. And try and change the name of the game. I, I like that you use cannabis as an example, and and I think we can we can wrap up with with this here as well. Though is cannabis stores get the license from the government and i do think that it's it's kind of bs that every cannabis store has the same products that are all sourced from the government but at least these private enterprises have the ability to compete against each other they can sell the paraphernalia the bongs the pipes the papers the merchandise and um you know exist in that private ecosystem it is still privatizing Maroki, if you and i wanted to buy a cannabis license and sell you know, tie-dye t-shirts to go with it, we're able to do that because we don't have to worry about the overarching, you know, Ontario Cannabis LCBO deciding to to just sell what we're selling, you know? I, I think there's a better yeah. way to do it. The way the LCBO exists right now, it's stay in your lane. And I'm, getting, I'm glad dry January is over because after my blood pressure is up like this, I probably could use a glass of wine. <laughs> well, I think this is a good segue as any into why we love wine. So shucking away the LCBO at the moment, we're going to be joined by a really dear friend of ours who's constantly making strides at changing the drinks industry in her own way while pairing delicious wine and spicy foods together. We are joined now by, I, I think I would consider her friend of the program, a friend of the program, Beverly. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> We're joined by Beverly Crandon uh, to talk about black grapes. And obviously, we're coming up on Black History Month, which is something that gets a lot of attention, um, deservedly so. How's it going, Beverly? Uh, it's going smashingly. Thank you for asking. How are you guys doing? <laughs> well, I think uh, <laughs> it's almost like, um, uh, I don't I, Andre like to say it burying the lead because I think you got a small glimpse into what uh, how we are both doing, which on our <laughs> recording day isn't awesome, but that's okay because we're going to talk about much more awesome things than our our the mundane uh, pains of our day jobs, yeah. <laughs> and which I think black grapes is 
I, I, you know, I attended it last year. Last year was its inaugural year. Am I correct, Beverly? You are right. And you know, yeah. the way last year came to be, so we have a bit of a relationship with Stacked Market from doing Spring into Spice there. And, you know, they had approached us and said, hey, do you want to do something here at Stacked for Black History Month? And it was literally like the middle of January going to the end of January. They're like, we can give you February 15th as a date. And I'm like, oh my God, that's no time. So I'm like, well, what can I do? Well, the only thing I know is wine and food. So I'm like, boom, we're doing that. So that's how Black Grapes came to be. And at that time, I, you know, it wasn't like spring the festival. I was like, well, we'll do it this one time and celebrate Black Voices and Wines. It's amazing. But it was such a success. And the feedback that we got. So we're doing it again. So now it's back. It's back in 2024. I love that. Oh my god! I, I, and Beverly, you the producer in me is so blown away, and and you telling me that you basically had like one month lead time to come up with this event because having attended it, it was such a smashing success. Um, absolutely, no doubt. I'm glad yeah, you're bringing it back again. I I love the it, like. I think one of the really important things about this event and a lot of the work that you do, Beverly, um, I think surrounds tokenization i know we've been getting uncomfortable with making me uncomfortable on the podcast lately maroki but you know um especially since uh the death of george floyd a large spotlight has been shown on people of color in the ontario wine industry but the spotlight seems to start and stop with a couple of prominent faces who are doing great work you are one of them beverly steve byfield at narai sellers is another one and I think it is really important that we see to see change and to see the change that we want to come that we scratch below the surface of that. So events like this are very important. Um, if we want to just unpack a little bit of some more of the, the higher level questions for people who are listening to the podcast, do you want to talk a little bit about the history of black people in winemaking? Yeah, and it, it's pretty mute when you look in books and all kinds of uh, texts whether it be online or hardcover, that speak about winemaking and the background. Um, <laughs> now, this could be controversial to some of your listeners, but, you know, they, people talk about Thomas Jefferson and they talk about his, you know, him being like the father of wine and all that kinds of good stuff and him experimenting in wine and his vineyards and, da, 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 and how great he was and such a savant. Well, it was black people. It, it was the enslaved, his slaves, who were planting grapes minding the vineyard, it was his slaves, it was not him. Um, but these are things that people don't tell you, like you have to look into text and you have to correlate two different books together to understand, well, what does this phrase mean? What was happening at this particular time, on this particular day? Who was in the field? Like, it's a lot of work and when you do it, you realize that the contributions of black people in wine have been there forever, just that you don't, you don't, no one ever talks about it, right? And then, being a, a sommelier and someone who loves wine and, and tries to get everybody else to drink wine because I want to make sure I'm employed in the wine industry for quite some time. Just joking, kind of not joking. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, when you do and you study history and you look at slavery and you look at the commodities that were brought from Europe down to Africa, then over to North America, and you hear and you read texts where it says, you know, move the crates of wine and put the the... the well, they use different words than black people in there. And black people were spoken about as a commodity. And the commodity oftentimes that they were talked about with is wine. 
Um, we all love Bordeaux, but we know Bordeaux was one of the biggest ports for uh, slave trade. We also love the Loire, but we know the um, western side of the Loire, closest to the water, was a another massive port, uh, Penances, for um, the slave trade. Um, and those places like Bordeaux and Western Loire, all of the Loire, really, a lot of their early economic wealth at that time was because of the slave trade. But people don't talk about those things and they're oftentimes swept under the rug. But I think it's important to know because those things, yes, that's history, but history can be systemic, right? And so people are like, well, why is it that when you go to the Caribbean, people are offering you beer mostly with your food as opposed to like, here, have some wine to go with such and such. You know, have this lovely sparkling to go with your escovitch fish while you're in Jamaica. If your ancestors saw something introduced to them as not being for them and being for the person who's enslaving you and treating you like the commodity, like this thing, a.k.a. wine, why would you think your ancestor would be like, well, let me just bring it and open it up with my family? Well, first of all, they couldn't afford it. It wasn't accessible to them, right? And it was positioned as a, a, a statement of luxury and hierarchy, just one of those things to say, well, this belongs to us over here and you over there. So wine was never seen as something that was for everyone, when, especially when you take a look at how it was introduced to certain parts of the world. So people often say, well, you know, you're talking about Bordeaux and Penantes and da da da, and their involvement in the slave trade means nothing today, but it does. It does. It definitely does. Because now you understand why when you go certain places, you don't see wine paired with the food. You understand that when you go to the Roti Hut here in Scarborough, right? You don't see them with this extensive wine list. And they could because there's so many things on this menu, food-wise, that will go wonderfully with wine. Like the acidity in wine is going to break down that escovitch fish. Listen, you're doing a curry. I got you. A curry shrimp, boom. Let's take this, you know, highly phenolic um, pinot gris and, and put it with that because there's some weight there and weight there. But these are things that people aren't exposed to because ancestry, right? I, I think it's strange that you felt the need to say that this is controversial. I'm, I'm sorry if the truth is controversial. That's not the the right word. If you're uncomfortable hearing that, like I'm, I'm sorry for you if you're uncomfortable. Uh, but I, I mean, this day and age. the the truth is the truth, and uh, if that's a hard pill to swallow, I mean, I'm, I'm not apologizing. I'm not apologizing for Beverly, and nor am I letting you sugarcoat that. The truth is the truth, and we need to accept it. So, there we go. I also, I also really appreciate that you're. Um, not only bringing up the history within North America, but how it permeated the globe, because I think yeah. that's something that we do. We get caught in our own bubble and we think like, oh, only in North America are we at fault or we have to uh, reconcile uh, what we've done to to black folks and other BIPOC people throughout history. But the truth of the matter is, is that that kind of systemic racism and prejudice and a history of slavery was actually a global phenomenon and and it, it permeated those industries, too. So, you know, Bordeaux, you're not free from from being, you know, from from the marring of uh, of the history and 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 your participation uh, should not be completely ignored, and you don't sit on like an angel's halo, I guess. Well, and, so and also so and also unpacking the the export side of this as well, because like wine's been exported globally for a very long time, and to touch on you know for people who might say, well, the reason why 
wine doesn't never made its way to the Caribbean, for example, with the examples that, that you cited, Beverly, is because you know the locals have their own beverages to work with. Like, you know, I think putting that together that it was, uh, you know, a byproduct of slavery and an inaccessible product is an interesting point to touch on as well. A hundred percent. And I think you know if we were to bring this back to today, and I've done the math. Very pain. Well, in Canada, it's very easy because there's not a lot of black people in wine, like making wine or owning vineyards. So I was like, one, two, three. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? It's very easy here in Canada. But, and there's a ton of like reports and documentation about what's happening in the States. And the numbers are exactly the same. So 1% of the wine market in both Canada and the United States is, is taken up by black people. And by that, I mean black people who own vineyards and black winemakers. It, 1% is, is the percentage. Now, when mm-hmm. you look at buying power of Black people across North America, it is $1.3 trillion. So what happens is if the people making the thing, the thing to sell, don't look like the folks who have the $1.3 trillion, then you also have some disjointed conversations. So you've got people marketing to this, this massive group with buying power and not really understanding who they're marketing to. Um, and not even thinking I need to market to them because for years I've been marketing to these other people and it's been working wonderfully. But you know what? Surprise, surprise, demographics have changed. And mm-hmm. $1.3 trillion is nothing to sneeze at. Now, not all of them, not all those dollars are going to wine. I get it. But I'm saying the capacity for consumerism in that particular block of humanity is quite, quite high. And so things like black grapes, yes, we're bringing people out to try wines that have some sort of influence by black people in the community. But it's also, and, and this year, because we had more time to plan it, <laughs> you know, I was pretty honest with some of the agencies who represent black winemakers from around the world. And I was like, listen, yes, like last year we could pour for you, but you know where you would benefit is coming out to the event and pouring the wines yourself. Because then you get to meet people in the community. You get to see how excited they are about wine. You get to form relationships. You get to sell wine to a market you can never access. You need to be at the event. And I was very firm with all of those agents. And I'm happy to say all but one are going to be there pouring their wines and interacting with the community. I will not mention who the one is. (laughs) I think so, like that, but I think that's in really important that you were that firm because um, I, I I know right before we hopped on this call, I was going on my own little tangent about some of uh, my my thoughts on how people are marketing for Lunar New Year and just the lack of education or the reliance on um, on the Asian market to do the job for them and a lot of the kind of um, poorly done marketing efforts towards the Asian market and we're reaching an we're reaching an era where that kind of level of treating your demographic like a pure commodity, like just like, oh, they're just money. And we don't, if we do the bare minimum, they will spend money. Those days are over. We are more educated than we've ever been. There's no reason to not be able to educate yourself. Google <laughs> is out there, guys. And and if you, if you really want to understand the market that you're pouring for, then you need to show up. You need to show up and learn from them and not ask someone else to do the labor for you. So 100%. I'm... I'm yeah, I'm really, really glad that you you put your foot down and and did that. And it's interesting because in some ways you answered a lot of the questions that I had already <laughs> formulated for you with regards to talking about the demographics or 
or growing the market. And maybe the one question that sort of cropped up in my head when you were talking about the history, you know, the history of slavery and also the presence or lack of presence of wine in, in the Caribbean, a lot of it also, you know, not only because of inaccessibility, but also because it clearly represents a very, like, a you know, represents your exploitation. So why would you drink the thing? Like, do you, like in some ways, you know, the I don't even know how to ask it. It's like, why get into it then? Like, right? As as black as black people, why would you want to get into wine, seeing yeah. the history that it represents? Because you need to break that. Because wine wine didn't do those bad things. Wine did not perform the injustices. They were, it was men, humankind, who did that. It, it was a person. It was not wine. And so the only way you can start to take back some of the narratives if you break some of those myths. So it's not wine. And as a matter of fact, by keeping us away from wine, I think you are trying to keep people ignorant to one of the beauties between food and wine pairing. Just, you know, sometimes you have a dish and you have this glass of wine and then the wine transforms what you're eating. Or you're like, wow, you know, that, that bite of that thing really transformed the taste of this wine. Now, why can't we all experience that? So we got to take back some of that, right? Like take some, take back some of our history, take back the, some ownership over that and over that enjoyment over this one thing, which is wine. And it's, it, yes, I'm talking about wine in this way, but it, it is symbolic. Mm-hmm. You understand? So yep. the fight that I put up and I use wine as my sword to go out there and fight all the injustices, it's symbolic because we can take the same ideology and apply it to many different industries by saying we want to take back some of our voice, we want to take back some of the some of, some of the things we've lost over history because we felt something wasn't for us. We weren't good enough for this thing. And that was from years and years and years of systemic racism. So that's why, you know, my first time when someone actually brought a couple of wines and we had dinner and I tried the wines with the food and the way they said to do it, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And that was in 2012. And I was like, wow, why haven't I done this before? It's just so good. And I was like, the way I was so awestruck with, with the experience of food and wine, I want everyone to go through that. And maybe not everybody would get all excited and geeky like the three of us would. <laughs> but, you know, that joy. And I was like, then I went and I experimented and tried all these different wines. And not only that, like when you get into wine, now you're studying geography. Now you're studying geology. Now you're studying like all of these things. Like it's just, a world of so much incredible information. And so that's that's why you should get into it. It's also fascinating because it's it's very much a two-way street. Because I think something that, that white people have a hard time with is that word reconciliation. And I spent a lot of time at a conservative talk radio station when we would talk about reconciliation and indigenous communities. We get angry phone calls from people thinking that reconciliation means me signing the deed of my house over to a First Nations person whose land it occupies. And I, I think we're at the point where we can have a conversation with indigenous people and say, that's not what reconciliation looks like. And the thing is what you're doing with wine, Beverly, what you're doing with your events is it's very much a, a two way street as well. Like it's not just breaking down the barriers and helping to reclaim a part of heritage that an entire community, an entire group of people based on their skin color was denied. It's also, bringing in the community in general in a welcoming way and you can come and talk about hard truths and i'm I'm sorry if what beverly said before made you uncomfortable as i said the truth is the the truth but you know with what beverly's trying to do it's not meant to make white people feel guilty about their past but it's about acknowledging the awful truths but moving forward and the nice thing about doing it with wine 
and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong as the, the, the white guy in the room, though, but we get to have a glass of wine at the end of a hard discussion, which is, I think, if anything, a, a great place to start you know, mending the damages that colonialism and that slavery have done. I think what better way to have these conversations than to show the the celebration of a culture and the people who are doing it, right? To celebrate black winemakers, black uh, grape growers, black agents. It's like, it's like what better way to sort of pave the way out of a really horrific past than by centering black folks in wine and showing the incredible work that they're doing and showing that they deserve to stand amongst all the greats in the industry, which I think is, you know, exactly what Beverly is doing. So Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe Beverly tell, tell um, any listener who's attending black grapes for the first time or is about to buy a ticket, what they should be expecting from this event. I know what I'm expecting. (laughs) I'm coming on with my bells and whistles, but why don't you share in your own words, what coming to this event would look like? Yeah, it's going to be a fun time and it's definitely larger this year than it was last year. So we've got 22 wines that are going to be there that you can sample. So you get a lovely tasting glass, which you get to take home if you'd like. And then you walk around and you sample those wines and you get a chance to talk to producers and even talk to the agencies who are representing some of the producers um, who are who can't be here, who are in the United States or South Africa. And learn the stories behind the grape growers and the winemakers. There are some incredible, incredible stories behind these folks who are making these wines. And I encourage everybody to ask questions while they're there. Now, I would not, I would be an awful host if I asked you to come out and just taste like 22 wines and gave you nothing to eat. So we do have some hors d'oeuvres that will be coming around. And you know, it's so funny. There's one thing that I, I put on the uh, hors d'oeuvre list and I'm like, oh God, is this going to be okay? But I'm like, listen, I love eating this thing with like a red wine. This is wonderful. Um, I'll tell you what it is. But we've got uh, all of the things that we're going to come around with food. They're all um, Caribbean or West African. So you're going to be tasting food from the diaspora uh, with these wines that are here. They're going to be there. Now, the one thing that I was saying, you know, is this a good idea or not? And I know multiple groups of people around the world eat this, but it's black, <laughs> black pudding, which you guys know what black pudding is. It's blood pudding, right? Correct. I've, had, right. It, I've had it before, but I don't know if I remember having it before. It is delicious. And all right, all right. This, you know what? If you're going to black grapes and the thought of blood pudding is something that that uh, is unsettling to you, I'm going to tell you to do uh, what I did. How I've discovered some of my favorite food, Maroki. As you know, I discovered chicken feet by eating first and asking questions later. If you're going to black grapes, eat first, ask questions later. You might find something new and delicious that you'd love. And I mean, the good thing is we've got more than just blood pudding on the. <laughs> <laughs> on the list and you know what listen if people don't eat it it's more for me it's, but i'm <laughs> telling you with a lovely glass of pinot noir mm, mm, mm. so good so so good right. the sour on the black pudding which is the little topping that we put on the black pudding makes the red grapes in a pinot noir be even more bright, bright and crunchier it just really changes that so. uh, all right beverly I, I guess one last question as we're as we're wrapping up here barring maroki i know you, you look like you're still in deep thought about everything that we've talked about here so i don't want to cut you off if we have more questions but honestly i think what we're i think what this conversation is stemming for me is that we need a part two and three somewhere (laughs) i'm uh, I'm game for it and we we should do it it not just in february yeah i mean yes uh which is why we're airing this on january 31st (laughs) (laughs) i I, so, so the question i have is um 
like like I said, like for me as as a white guy in the industry, the question of diversity really only became front and center during the year of the pandemic, uh, 2020. Um, are we making progress? Are we more diverse as a wine industry? Are the right conversations happening? I know this is sort of a, a tough thing to throw at you as the last question, Beverly, and and at the end of an interview. But like, are we are we making progress and heading in the right direction? We are definitely making progress. I mean. Today, our society, we're, we're like an instant gratification society. And that is just ridiculous when it comes to this. You've got 400 years of, can I swear on this? Yeah. You've got, oh, of shit. <laughs> right? That we, we have to make up for. So that's not going to happen within three, now four years. Well, May will make four years since George Floyd's murder. That's not going to happen within just four years. But what I will tell you, especially when you look at groups like Vinequity, when I look at folks who applied for scholarships for like their, their first phase of whatever, level one, this level one, that, they are now coming and saying, hey, I want to do um, diploma. I'm thinking about going for my, um, my sommelier my, through the Court of Masters. They're, they're now moved up, you know, in terms of their education. Um, it got to the point where we had someone who applied for mentorship this year. And I'm like, this person is so advanced now. We don't, I don't know if I have a mentor for her. Like, <laughs> where are we? And this is a good problem. That means it's working. But I know it's one person out of thousands in the industry, but we're now seeing these examples. And I always say to people that in seven to 10 years from now, we're going to sit down and have a different conversation about diversity in our industry. I think we're going to see, we're going to see more um, cognitive diversity around the table for sure. I'll just say it. I'll just say it. I'll just rattle it off. So guys, check out Black Grapes. It's coming up on February 21st from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. It is at the Fort York Visitor Center. And you can get tickets for $35 on Eventbrite. Or you can check out Spring into Spice on Instagram. Or Beverly Crandon on Instagram. I'm sure between the two accounts, you will find access to Black Grapes. Thanks so much for your time, Beverly. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate you. Andre, it's that time of year again when maybe we can get over our winter doldrums a little bit because Winterlicious is here. I'm trying really hard to not get too much into the doldrums because the winter hasn't been too, too cold. But, you know, as of the day that we're recording this, the cold snap has finally broken. But um, anyone who has heard our radio show or followed me on Instagram or eaten dinner at my house know that uh, I have some opinions about the Liciouses. I know. And it was interesting. It was an eye-opening experience for me to hear it from yourself as well. And there is a moment where, even though I've participated in the food and beverage industry over the last three years, and of course, you know, my previous life as an actor, it meant that a lot of my friends and I worked in the service industry um, as a way to pay our bills. Because lo and behold, guys, being an actor doesn't necessarily pay the bills. I, I hate to crush the dream. But, um, <laughs> but you know, there was, but there was something I always loved about Winterlicious, which is the opportunity to visit a new restaurant, know that there's this cool set meal. Usually you get a bit of a deal doing it. And it's, I've often become a regular at those restaurants afterwards. So it was, um, it was a good reminder when you brought up the concerns that you had that, some things may not be as shiny from the other side. You know, the um, the criticism that I have leveled has had to do with, you know, food quality that I think there's some re- some restaurants, not all restaurants, are willing to sacrifice uh, what you might expect from the regular dining menu in order to satisfy the entry-level price point. 
Um, I know that talking to some restaurants, they are not as happy with customers uh, that are less likely to tip and things like that. Hopefully, post-pandemic has changed about that. But that's enough about my concerns. I know we'll unpack that later or maybe with our guest because our guest literally lit up when we were doing our pre-interview with him to uh, just talk about what what angles we wanted to cover with him. We're joined by Hui Tran, the National Director of Marketing for the uh, group, a brewery group of restaurants in Canada. How's it going, Hui? Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Andre and Miroki. Uh, I'm doing well. It's getting ready for Wintelicious as we're talking about it. Right on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the thing I want to get into, Hui, right, with you right away is historically, and maybe it was because when I was younger, my wallet was smaller and I never looked so far past the certain price ranges because Winterlicious obviously offers meals in different price ranges that you can click. But I always wondered why a fine dining restaurant, especially one as well known as the Abri Group, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, for, for within the group, it is Minam, it's Minami and Miku that is participating in Winterlicious, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and for me, Miku and Minami are pretty established fine dining restaurants, if not Michelin restaurants. So very well known, loyal clientele. What is the reason behind participating in Winterlicious? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that we want our food and our cuisine, um, which is the Aburi cuisine, to be able to reach uh, more you know, simply put, people who are not really our usual suspects or not usually our usual clients that live in Toronto, uh, you know, people who live in Brampton, Mississauga, Oakville, we oftentimes see them travel all the way to Toronto for this specific two weeks period, you know, that, that celebrate a lot of different cuisine and restaurants and, you know, being able to showcase what we do and what we have been doing for such a long time since 2008 um, or cuisine. Um, it's, it's one of the biggest reasons why we look forward to Wintelicious and Summerlicious every year. You know, I love mm-hmm. that whole concept of making food accessible, especially when you're getting into that fine dining, um, you know, growing up in in western canada growing up in saskatchewan um and once again like this is no knocks against a place like the keg for example that offers really good food at a really good price but when you start pulling out those white tablecloths it's a different experience so when you create that stepping stone to get people into your restaurant that's really important so i I certainly commend you for that um what do you think people are looking for though when they visit a winterlicious restaurant not not just yours, but like Winterlicious in general. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I used to be um, a very, very um, enthusiast when it comes to Winterlicious as a diner as well. Like when I was a student and, you know, when I first started working. So I can't speak from my experience. Um, you know, I think I was looking for value and variety. When I look at the menus on the Toronto website, uh, you know, I want to see what kind of food I'm getting within the three courses um, and how much I'm paying for them, essentially. Mm-hmm. And maybe just to expand on that a little bit, you mentioned you wanted to introduce people to Aburi Cuisine. Um, for people who aren't familiar with Aburi Cuisine, what is it? Yes, so Aburi uh, is flame clear. Uh, so the way that we prepare our sushi and oshi, which is uh, box press sushi, um, we add a very special touch of uh, house-made 
proprietary sauce, and then we finish it off with flame searing. Um, on some certain premium fish uh, and nigiri, we apply the flame searing to slightly change the texture of the fish um, so that you can have more of that umami flavor when you enjoy the piece of the fish. So that, that comes together, really puts forward, you know, what we want to showcase. A different style, a different way of eating and enjoying um, sushi. And, you know, very important to highlight within that is when you eat our sushi, a burrito style, you don't need soy sauce. That is, oh, that that is interesting. I, okay, so pardon my, pardon my ignorance here because I actually had not heard of or, or ever seen Aburi style and I'm someone who really enjoys um, going out for sushi and, and not the all-you-can-eat places. I am looking for like really great sushi. How common and how widespread is this uh, style of preparing sushi? Um, I would say quite quite common um when it comes to, to you know there there's certain a lot of different restaurants that had opened up that is currently serving the same style of, of a buri sushi um so from the existing restaurants and and you know our friends in the industry that are serving the same cuisine on the menu since we opened i certainly will say that it's, it's, it's pretty popular i would like to think that it started, at least in Toronto, rising to fame in about 2019. I remember I had, I used to have a client who worked in finance. And around 2019, she kept saying to me, Oh my God, Maroki, Amiku opened up in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, she, she went to Vancouver a lot. So she was always like, they have, to, she was calling it torch sushi at the time. Um, yes. And she was just kept saying, they have torch sushi. And she kept, she's like, Oh my God, Maroki, you have to go. And then, and it was there. I think it really picked up. So, that's where I, I I think I would so I at this point about five years but you know we all blacked out for about three years of our lives but, <laughs> yeah. so, new but not new and I and I think the style has been around longer but it was never um uh, I guess wrapped up in a more like dedicated way of presenting it it was always sometimes if you went to a sushi restaurant at least in my me- my memory of being in Japan was you got an assortment of sushi and aburi style would be part of it. But this is the first time where we've really seen it kind of um, considered and dedicated effort to it in like in a restaurant per se. Yes, totally. Our founder, Sego Nakamura, he brought the style, this style of, of sushi to Canada and, and there I say North America in 2008. And, you know, since then it's been a, a huge journey for, for him and the entire company, you know, in 2021 we got our first michelin star um sorry my apologies 2022 we got a first michelin star with a brihana and then you know subsequently we also got michelin recommended for miku vancouver which opened up in 2008 was the first flagship to showcase a brie cuisine to canada and you know it's it's been growing ever since and you know i'm, I'm very happy to hear that your colleagues is, is a fan of, of our flame sear sushi as well um miku toronto has been around since 2015 and you know we, we are going to celebrate our 10 years in in next year and i i can't wait to continue to introduce this um style of sushi to as many as um possible Man, you, you oh, know what? For it. someone who's been critical of um, of Winterlicious uh, from from my side here, I'm definitely putting uh, putting Miku on the list here now because um, I'm definitely intrigued on on getting to experience what we just talked about here. 
But I mean, bringing this back to Winterlicious, can, can we talk about this? Because I like to talk about, um, you know, the, the marketing and business side of this. Like, that's something I find really fascinating about how, how restaurants exist. For you and your restaurant group, like, what are the real benefits that you see, like, from participating in something like Winterlicious? Like, because I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have done the, the calculations about, um, whether or not you're going to get lost in the shuffle. Like, like, what, like, do you, do you, do you see a way of standing out or is it just like the excitement of bringing new customers in? Like what, like what exactly, what is it you're hoping to accomplish with being part of Winterlicious and why it's important for your restaurants to be a part of it? Yeah, for sure. I think the number one thing that we look for is returning faces. Um, you know, every single Winterlicious, there are so many new folks uh, um, and new faces that, that come into our restaurants and, you know, they are excited to try the menu. They're ex- excited to, you know, make a reservation, come with their friends. And, you know, it, a lot of them also hop around to try different delicious menu. And, and I remember this one year I see this one uh, guests who have a passport and it's their Winterlicious passport. So they're trying to score as many restaurants that are offering Winterlicious as passport as they go around. But, you know, I think that what is the most um, important thing to us and, 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 you know, also heartwarming to see is that that guest comes and enjoy the food and we see them returning on a regular dinner reservation outside and after delicious. And, you know, that, that's when, you know, our team really understand it. Oh, you know, the creation that our chefs have made and, and you know, the ingredients that they put together that has to fit within this frame of, you know, pricing and, and coursing detail of, of the city actually got people enjoy the experience and, and you know, convert them into um, continued guests of our business. And, and yeah, I would say that's the most important thing. That's I wonder great. if the city of Toronto gives you a, a prize if you <laughs> can check on. <laughs> I think it, I think it would actually be cool if the city of Toronto was able to coordinate like a, a real passport that people. Oh, just what you on. just what you need, Maroki, an element of competition that comes with uh, with one of the licious's <laughs> as well. I can just see you strategically sitting behind your keyboard, mapping out the most efficient way to hit every restaurant. Oh, you think I don't do that already? Wait, <laughs> <laughs> wait, let me ask you here. Um, I, I, I guess I'm the Debbie Downer in the room here right now, but I, I mean, I read the Financial Post every morning, and I know there's a bit of uh, doom and gloom in terms of how Canadians are spending money, but do you expect it to be um, a busy Winterlicious this year, or uh, are, are the books full? Are people already excited and making reservations? Yeah, so, so far, uh, we are seeing quite some excitement uh, with Winterlicious. Um, you know, we we partner with Open Table for reservations and, you know, they they really help us in terms of organizing our books and making reservations, streamlined for our front of house team. And reservation opened on the 11th of January, which was 12 days ago. Uh, and we've seen really good tracking. I think within the first seven days, we've We've noticed some almost 200 covers um, for for Manami. Um, and, you know, I haven't checked back since, um, but we, we have been having really good initial um, reaction to, to our menus, uh, and, and that had translated to the, the reservation that we've seen. So, yeah, I, I think there's some excitement still around Winterlicious, despite, you know, um, the, the ongoing kind of gloomy um, situation in, um, in our economy at the moment. 
Mm-hmm. Great. I, I'm glad well, you're the one who threw the word gloomy out out there and not just me. So, <laughs> I mean, it's especially gloomy right now. Well, I know the menu because, uh, as I've alluded to, I've already kind of skulked around <laughs> the Winterlicious website and may have been loading up all the menus to kind of determine um, all the reservations I want to make. But for our listeners, why don't you share some of what you're cooking up at Minami um, and or Miku? Yeah, for both of the venues, I guess, uh, for, for Miku, I'll start, you know, for lunch and dinner, you can expect both sushi and land offering. That's kind of the, the ethos that we want to offer. So we want piece of the ocean, we want piece of the land, you know, so from appetizer to main dish, you have our sashimi selection, or you can choose between, you know, a Miku Zen, which is a, a, a collection of small plates that work with salmon, with guagu tartar, with um, a, a guagu croquet um, that that combines with on that platter. And we also use very specific uh, sakio miso um, to marinate the salmon to create, you know, a more umami flavor. Um, and for the main courses for lunch, you know, you can expect an entire aburi sushi plate. Um, there are many pieces, including raw, maki, uh, and different nigiri style. Uh, and then, you know, going down more of the dinner path, um, you know, you can expect to see um, more protein options like a branzino, um, a saute branzino. Um, we also have a soy braised lamb dish. Um, or, you know, a vegetarian option can be a curry roasted bocha. Um, and then obviously you cannot, you know, finish with delicious with our signature green tea opera um, dessert that actually takes 72 hours to make from, from uh, oh the Niku perspective. I'm, I'm hungry. And I mean, that's the sort of thing, too, where you, you listen to what it takes to get mentioned in the Michelin Guide. It's that attention to detail and, you know, quality of cuisine. So, you know, I haven't set foot in the restaurant there, but man, I get it. And I'm looking forward to it when I do eventually make my way there. Yeah, I think mm, you're due for a visit, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe as a quick teaser as we wrap up here, just because you did mention it in the pre-interview, and I can't leave without wanting to shout out the fact that Lunar New Year is going to be coming in as Winterlicious wraps up. And it seems like you have things cooking up for Lunar New Year as well. Yes, uh, Miku is introducing a very exclusive um, platter for Lunar New Year uh, for to enjoy at home um, you know you can expect a very handcrafted variety of premium nigiri and sushi and maki um, and as well as our, our I, I know you know we haven't mentioned our, our sister restaurant Aburitora in in the interview so far but we also have um, a very special Lunar New Year feature called the Aburi Dragon Roll um, to celebrate Year of the Dragon um, coming up for Lunar New Year Oh, yes. As the year of the dragon, I think I might have to make my way down to Yorkville and get that stuff. Yes. Well, Hui, thank you very much for for taking me to school a little bit. And, you know, maybe like the the winterlicious Grinch, my heart will grow three sizes and I'll get back on (laughs) with it in the future here. Yes, I I truly hope so. And, you know, I, I look forward to having you both in for winterlicious. You know, Maroki, I am really disappointed that that Hui did a good job um essentially taking the wind out of my brat sails uh that I really I like 
like I've made it a sport to essentially crap on Winterlicious to help advocate for my food industry friends who loathe it and loathe the crappy customers. So, you know, I'm just going to end this this whole segment with me saying, if you're going to Winterlicious, yeah, you're getting a deal, but make sure you tip your 15 to 20%. Um, you can't afford to tip the 15 or 20%. You can't afford to do Winterlicious. These people are working really hard to do it. Um, and... I think I am going to uh, revisit my own views on Winterlicious a little bit just because of Hui's enthusiasm. Like, I, I, it was a genuine pleasure to hear how he feels about Winterlicious. So, yeah, wind knocked out of my brat sails. I think it could be a sign of positive change for Winterlicious or the industry in general too, right? Like, perhaps we are becoming more and more educated about respecting our restaurants. I know one of the things we regularly talk about is when there's events like this that people kind of do a serial booking. Yep you know, go nuts on open table and proceed to disrespect the restaurants by yeah. doing no shows and yep. not and, and not taking a penalty. There's more booking systems now that either take a credit card on file or or actually will charge you if you do a no show to ensure that people are serious about their bookings. And I think like maybe that's just a sign that the industry is getting a little bit better and Winterlicious is getting a little bit better. And to be fair, like if I if I wanted to be super economical, right? Like this is no disrespect to the restaurants, but I am a dollars and cents person. And when I look at some of those Winterlicious menus these days, um, a lot of them isn't like you're getting a crazy deal. Like it's not yeah. like you're walking in and you're getting half price off. Some are offering some insane deals. Some of them, it, the deals um, play out if you order certain dishes on the menu and maybe it all kind of shakes out to an, an equilibrium somewhere. But I think, I think we're just hopefully being better consumers and being better guests and recognizing that when you're going to a restaurant and you're getting the chance to experience um, what the kind, you know, experience a, a wonderful evening or a wonderful lunch that, that the customer isn't always right. And that's a two way street. If you want to dine out, you know, a hot take that I think we'll definitely unpack on a later episode. I am very much on board with restaurants charging no show fees. And I was um, doing a wine tasting at a restaurant that I know charges a no show fee. And I don't want to out them because I think that is still a controversial thing to entitled customers. You make the reservation, you show up. You can't make the reservation, you cancel it. You make the reservation, you don't cancel it, you don't show up, pay the fee. It's pretty easy. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I, mem- I remember you using the example once about like buying a movie ticket or buying a ticket to a theater show, yep. right? Um, I'm I'm all for the no-show fee. I have happily booked at restaurants and dropped the, you know, dropped my credit card on file knowing the pe- uh, the penalty if I don't show up. And I just think it's a reasonable a sign of respect for the restaurant. But a uh, subject for another time, Winter yes. Lucas is on till February 8th. There's, I think, like 200 restaurants listed. I actually took my friend out um at, you know at the, at the at the time this episode goes live i winterlicious has since started and i've taken a friend out and he has um he, it was his first winterlicious he was coming from out so he was doing he was being he was being everything who he described in the customers who come out of town for winterlicious <laughs> and his mind was absolutely blown we took him out for a belated birthday his mind was absolutely blown so do check it out um you can find it all on the winterlicious website you can actually look it up on a map so you can kind of see you know whether something is geographically located close to you or it can be like me and scroll through all the restaurants from a to z and just go like (laughs) window shopping on on menus because i find that really really exciting for someone like myself 
I love that. I I used to do that as well when I used to live in Toronto once upon a time before I became cynical and jaded and married to someone who works in the industry. Um, coming up on our next show, I'm really excited about it because it's something that I love. Um, you've grown up with it, so it's a big part of who you are. For me, I'm a, a tourist who's been lucky enough to have friends share it with them, but we're going to be unpacking Lunar New Year. So set your calendars, folks. Tasting Together airs every two weeks with the next one coming up on February 14th. And if you like what you are listening to, please leave us a five-star review and subscribe. Bye.